Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. As public health authorities race to vaccinate the world, is the coronavirus evolving to stay ahead? Since around November, we have seen more instances where we observe new variants or variants of concern. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show how studying individual cancer genes may improve treatments. The idea is to look for different kinds of treatments that might be useful against different kinds of cancers, which have different kinds of genetic causes. And I versus AI. What happens when your eyesight suddenly fails, as mine did last weekend? And why artificial intelligence algorithms couldn't treat me? We've been working on essentially rebuilding the algorithm from the ground up. Now we need to think about how it can have meaningful human-AI interactions at scale all around the world. But first... The mission to vaccinate the world is off to a flying start, as James Francham, The Economist data journalist, told our new podcast, The Jab, this week. Around 250 million doses have been administered so far, and that number is growing by about 5 million new doses a day. But infections are still occurring at a rapid pace, and perhaps more worryingly, different variants of the coronavirus are circulating around the world. Six cases of the new Brazilian variant. The troubling variant out of South Africa is a contagious variant in California as well. The variants are caused by mutations in the genetic information of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Mutations are an act of nature, but actually it will only do that in the context of when it's replicating in a cell in somebody's throat. Sharon Peacock is a professor of public health and microbiology at the University of Cambridge. Whilst it's replicating, it can make mistakes in the genetic code, and that can mean mutation. And so that's where the mutations come from. When you think that there's been over 100 million cases of COVID-19 on the planet so far, that's a great deal of opportunity for mutations to occur. Genetic sequences with similar mutations are grouped into lineages or variants. So far, scientists have documented a total of 41,000 mutations, falling into 880 lineages. But the genomes of less than 1% of all COVID-19 infections worldwide have been sequenced and published. It is becoming clear that to keep epidemics under control, more genomic surveillance is necessary. Genetic sequencing is trying to understand the genetic code of the organism that's under consideration. Professor Sharon Peacock leads Britain's COVID-19 genomic sequencing program called COG-UK. Once somebody has a swab and it's positive for SARS-CoV-2, in order to get that sequenced, then the waste product from that sample 
is sent to a sequencing laboratory and it's processed for sequencing. What that means is that the RNA of the virus is actually first of all swapped into DNA and then the DNA is amplified or expanded up and that is sequenced through a sequencing machine. So what comes out is a series of letters and the genetic code of the virus is about 30,000 different letters. There's been a lot of concern lately about the variants first found in Britain and then South Africa and Brazil and California. How much of a threat do they pose? The new variants pose certainly a threat at the moment, although the exact extent of the threat is still to be determined. When you have a virus that's been selected out through a natural selection or survival of the fittest, if you like, you're going to get a virus that's the fittest form that it can be. If it's more transmissible and it can avoid aspects of the human immune response, at least partially, then you have a virus that is likely to cause more problems for control than a virus that can't do that. But the actual scale at which that will cause us problems in terms of control is yet to be defined. And what is it that's worrying scientists about those mutations? There are four different types of categories of mutations that I worry about. The first is mutations that could lead the virus to be more transmissible. And the second is that they're mutations that affect our immune response. So it could be that it could partially evade our immune response from vaccination or natural infection. There could be changes that lead to an increase in lethality. It could cause more death. And finally, there could be changes that mean that the way our diagnostic tests work for COVID-19 are altered and could be affected in terms of their accuracy. Now, is your research finding more of those mutations that have these terrible pathologies associated with them? Since around November, we have seen more instances where we observe new variants or variants of concern. In the overall viral population, actually, they still form a very small proportion of the overall virus. But they are concerning because they do have particular mutations. For example, the N501Y mutation associated with transmission. But in particular, one that's becoming quite infamous is a mutation called E484K. Now, that's present in what we call the spike protein. That's the bit of the virus that interacts with human cells and basically latches onto the cell. It's important for cell uptake. And that's of concern because... That's the one that appears to be associated with a reduction in the efficacy of the human immune response. And so over time, we're beginning to see more viral variants popping up with these particular set of mutations that are associated with increased transmissibility and potentially reduced immune response. And that's why vaccine manufacturers are looking at how they can adapt their vaccines. And they're already doing that, for example, against the variant that was first detected in South Africa to see whether the vaccine can be tweaked to make it more effective. So it's important that we keep it into perspective and that we consider that we have the tools to both detect the mutations as they arise and the ability to tweak vaccines so that they remain effective. Now, why should that mutation take place? Isn't the general consensus that viruses would evolve to be less dangerous so that they don't kill their hosts and can continue to reproduce? As we move on through the pandemic, more and more people are developing immunity. And so we reach a point in our pandemic where there are quite a high number of cases still, but in the context of part of the population have immunity. And that's quite a heady mix. And that's when we see natural selection, the virus beginning to emerge that can actually both spread in that population, but continuing to infect people who already have existing immunity. There is some evidence that the variant that arose in the UK, B117, appears to be somewhat more lethal than other circulating viruses, by which I mean it causes more severe disease. 
Now, if you get to hospital, then you're not more likely to die. But if you take, for example, a thousand people in their 60s and imagine that 10 of those might unfortunately succumb from COVID-19, the increase in lethality for this particular variant means that about 13 or 14 people would die instead of 10. So it's very important for those particular people who unfortunately succumb, but the increase is relatively modest overall. And I think it's really important that we're not alarmist about this. So majority of the virus circulating is going to be treated or, or prevented by an effective vaccine that we know that there are several available. A small proportion of the virus there could be a reduced immunity. Now, what armaments are in our arsenal for us to respond? Many people point to the widespread genomic mutation surveillance as the only way out. How critical is that? And what else can we do? I believe that genome sequencing is a really important tool because it's agnostic. It's not looking for particular mutations. It will tell you the entire genetic repertoire in that particular virus. And so increasing genome sequencing is really important across the globe so that we have our eyes on the virus. If people are not sequencing in particular countries, you don't know what's circulating, and so you cannot be sure what variants are are there. There are new diagnostic tests that are being developed really specific to particular mutations, and so they can be done very quickly, quicker than genome sequencing. And they could be used in particular environments where you want to search out for the presence of a particular variant, but you're only going to find what you look for in that case. So I think you have to have sequencing being used nonetheless. But there are other clinical signals that you can look for when you're looking for variants. For example, a surge in cases, which is unexpected. So that was certainly the signal that we saw in Kent back in late November into December, that cases were surging despite lockdown. So these different tools are important to use together. Sequencing and clinical and epidemiological surveillance combined will give you the best possible eyes on the disease. So what can we learn for other diseases beyond covid And could mass sequencing stop the next pandemic? There's never been a time when we've used sequencing at such scale for any particular pathogen. We've already sequenced more than half a million viruses to date. What we can learn from doing that is going to really show us evolution of the virus in an incredible fine scale in a way that we've never never observed before. Mass sequencing is going to be part of the way that we think in, in science and diagnostics in the future. I'm quite sure that it would have a major and rapid role in detection and control of the next pandemic. But there are other things that we could direct it to, for example, the detection and control of antibiotic resistance. So it's a technology with great utility for the future, and I think it's going to be around for many, many years to come. Professor Sharon Peacock, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Genomic sequencing can also shed light on a disease that affects around 18 million people globally every year, cancer. Cancer is caused by mutations in a person's genetic code, which makes previously well-behaved cells reproduce uncontrollably. Cancers are difficult to treat, often because the disease affects each patient differently. But precision medicine, which are specific treatments to attack each patient's cancer, could provide an answer. Cancer is a particularly good disease to apply this kind of thinking to. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor, and he's been reporting on the cancer dependency map. It is a data resource aimed at enabling precision medicine for cancer patients. The idea is to try and sort of catalogue as many different kinds of cancer-causing mutations as possible, on the one hand, 
and then to look for different kinds of treatments that might be useful against different kinds of cancers which have different kinds of genetic causes. So a drug that works against a cancer arising from one kind of mutation might work better or might not work as well against a cancer that arises from a different kind of mutation. And so in a way, it's a, a big data project. It's a giant correlational exercise where you get a big list of cancers on the one hand, a big list of drugs and treatments on the other, and try combinations and try and match them up to see if you can find things that work better than just a sort of standard or more generic approach to, to treating it. So why is the cancer dependency map different to the conventional approach to treatments? I think the idea is to try and target things more precisely. So the mainstays of cancer treatment are things like chemotherapy, radiography, surgery, where these are sort of broad spectrum treatments. So chemotherapeutic drugs, they interfere with cell division. And because cancer cells tend to divide more often than most other kinds, that affects cancer cells particularly badly. But the treatment affects almost every cell in your own body, which is why chemotherapy causes so many unpleasant side effects. The hope is that if you can hone in more precisely, then you can do a better job of stopping the cancer and with fewer side effects than something like a course of chemotherapy might cause. So how does the cancer dependency map study the effects of cancers on different genes? Well, the first job is to collect as many different kinds of cancer as, as possible. So Jesse Bohm, who is in charge of the Broad Institute side of the project, it's a collaboration between them and the Wellcome Sanger Institute in the UK and some others, he told a conference last month that before the dependency map got going, there were maybe around 1,700 different cell lines of, of sort of cancer cells that were available that can be grown in labs and that you can use to test treatments on. So their approach to getting more was actually quite low-tech in a way. They used social media. So they worked with several different American cancer charities and ran a social media campaign encouraging patients all over the country to send biopsies of their tumours off to the Broad. And, and as a result of that, they got about 2,000 samples and they've been able to generate another 400 extra cell lines off the back of that project. And one of the, the nice things is that around a third of those are from cancers that are kind of rare in the general population or that occur mostly in children. And both of those are underrepresented, I think, in the existing stock of lab-growable cancer cell lines. So are they developing any drugs or treatments on the back of this? Yeah, so the, the next stage is once you've got these cancer cells growing in, in petri dishes in a lab, you can then start systematically going through a whole bunch of drugs and just seeing what the effects are. So they reckon that so far they're, they're up to about 6,000 different drugs. And just for context, that's about half the number of drugs that have ever been licensed ever for any disease of any kind uh, against 500 different cancers. And you've seen some promising candidates already. So there's a, an arthritis medicine for pets called tepoxalin, which, as it turns out, appears to kill a particular kind of cancer in which a gene called ABCB1 is more active than it should be. There's another drug, disulfiram, which was originally designed and licensed to treat alcoholism. It turns out that that appears to be toxic to some sorts of tumours that don't express a series of genes that are involved with, among other things, with processing heavy metals that get into the body. So we're already turning up new drug candidates simply by brute force search, as it were. This is really interesting and very optimistic. It works in the lab, but is there evidence that it works in people too? Well, this is less clear, and this is always the problem with these sort of early stage tests. So 
these are human cancer cells that are growing in dishes. So you could be at least somewhat confident that some of this stuff might have an effect. There are some wrinkles though. When you persuade cells to grow in petri dishes, human cells aren't really designed to grow in petri dishes. They're designed to grow in human organisms as part of a bigger body where they're exposed to all kinds of signaling molecules and all that kind of thing. If you isolate them and plonk them in a dish, they will grow, but it changes the patterns of gene expression. So one kind of open question is exactly as you say, you know, how well will this translate into people? But ultimately, the only way to try this stuff is going to be the normal process. You start doing these tests in petri dishes, you would then maybe progress to mice, then you would start doing small scale human trials. And there's kind of no real short circuit to that process. Now, it's not just drugs that they're testing. They can use this technique to get a better understanding of how genes work as well. Yeah, so this is the sort of flip side of of the drug question, as it were. So, you know, you have a drug that works better or worse against cancers with different sort of gene expressions. Well, what if you flip that round? And one of the most exciting developments in biology recently has been the discovery and development of this system called CRISPR-Cas9, which is usually described as a set of molecular scissors. It's basically a tool that lets you do fairly precise gene editing on cells. So one of the other things that the dependency map people are doing is they're taking CRISPR and using it to disable one by one almost every gene in hundreds of different cancer cell lines. So rather than trying hundreds of drugs on a particular kind of cancer, you take a particular cancer and say, well, what happens if we knock this gene out? What happens if we knock that gene out? And what they're looking for is genes that seem to be essential to the tumor's survival. So you knock one particular gene out and the tumor dies. And that in turn might throw up promising ideas for drug development. So if you can find a drug that seems to interact with the gene or with the protein, the chemical that that gene makes in your body, then again, maybe you have a good way to target the tumour. And we do have examples of this working in petri dishes. There's one gene called WRN, which is one of several genes involved in fixing damaged DNA. And interestingly, a lot of cancer cells are already deficient in genes that repair DNA. That's often you know, one reason why they become cancerous in the first place. So you know, having this as a target, you can then hand it over to drug companies and say, hey, you should try and develop some kind of compound that targets this gene. And that's something that's already underway. Tim Cross, thank you. Thanks, Ken. To unlock more of the content that you might be missing out on, be sure to subscribe to The Economist. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. So that you don't forget, the link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them Ken sent you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And finally, last Saturday morning, I walked into my kitchen and suddenly my field of vision became obscured by black lines as if I was looking through shattered glass. Then the line swirled and broke into tiny specks, darkening my vision like a screen placed in front of my eyes. 
I realized it was just one eye, and I was scared. Was I going to lose my vision? I rushed to a nearby optometrist who sent me to the emergency room of Moorfields Eye Hospital in central London. Now, Moorfields is well-known globally among AI geeks as the place doing path-breaking research with Google DeepMind applying machine learning to eye diseases. So at the hospital, I couldn't help but tease the staff that unless I was diagnosed by an algorithm and treated by a robot, I'd be disappointed. It was a joke I tiresomely repeated until I was wheeled in for emergency eye surgery for a retinal tear. The incident gave me a personal look at why the conventional view that AI will replace doctors is overly simplified. Dr. Pierce Keane of University College London leads the AI research at Moorfields, and he calmed my jitters over the weekend. He joins me now. Hello, Pierce. Hi, Ken. Now, Pierce, AI couldn't come to my rescue in this instance, but let's start with your research. What are you doing with AI to address eye diseases? We've been working to develop AI-enabled healthcare and ophthalmology for the past four or five years. Now, in 2016, motivated by the fact that some of our patients were losing sight, not just in the UK, but all around the world, because of delays in being seen and treated by people like me who are retinal specialists, we approached DeepMind, the artificial intelligence company, to work together to develop an AI system that could identify some of the commonest causes of blindness We published the first proof of concept in the journal Nature Medicine in 2018. And now we're essentially going through what I've learned is the more arduous phase of translating that into a product that can be used at scale by patients all around the world. Now, even if your research did apply to my condition, there would be general challenges taking algorithms and putting them into practice. Tell me about them. The AI system that we have developed at Moorfields is developed for a range of diseases such as age-related macular degeneration and diabetic eye disease and other conditions. But more broadly, there's a whole series of challenges in bringing AI systems into clinical practice, going from code to clinic. So the piece of experimental code that's used in a research paper cannot in any way be deployed at scale around the world. And so there's a big question around the technical maturity of the algorithms that are developed. So we've been working on essentially rebuilding the algorithm from the ground up so that it works with a fraction of the computing power in a fraction of the time. Now we need to think about how we can turn this into a production car and how it can have meaningful human AI interactions at scale all around the world. And it turns out That is the hardest and most challenging part, at least at the current stage of AI-enabled healthcare. Now, as I was being treated as a patient, Moorfields was collecting information. You had data on my eye scans, you had my age, my sex, my racial profile. Are you using that data to train the next generation of algorithms to diagnose eye problems? What we know from the advances in deep learning over the last few years is that if you can get a massive data set which has accurate labels associated with it, then you're in with a fighting chance of getting state-of-the-art performance uh, of the the deep learning system in that particular task. Now, of course, the real world isn't always like that. So there are many rarer diseases. Even in a big center like Moorfields, almost every single day, we see cases that we have never encountered before and have us scratching our heads. And so that sort of open-ended aspect of healthcare is a thing that I think still hasn't fully been grasped and is a real challenge. 
So I think that we're going to enter a world where AI is going to have transformative effects, but it's not going to replace the, the healthcare professionals anytime soon. So back to classic diagnostics, when do you think that AI will be a part of the standard practice of care that optometrists can use at the initial stages when they see a person and they're trying to evaluate what the needs are and whether there's actually a serious disease or not? I think that this is actually coming sooner rather than later. So particularly with my own work that we're doing here at Moorfields, I hope that we will see this in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. This is coming soon. This is not a five-year time horizon to start to see these AI systems implemented in the real world. Dr. Keane, thank you very much. Thank you. My eye is recovering, yet the incident underscored how AI won't replace medical professionals, but will make them better. Diagnoses are rarely 100% clear, and treatment options are not black and white. So we need interpreters and human judgment. And an important part of the care is soothing patient anxiety, which takes a person, in my case, Joe, a kind nurse who gently squeezed my arm and pumped me full of sedatives. I thank all of them. And I thank you for listening to Babbage, which was produced by Jason Hoskin and Abesoye Ashindairo. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.